Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's really great to have Coleman Hughes on the podcast. Coleman is an undergraduate philosophy major at Columbia University and a columnist for Quillette Magazine. His writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, City Journal, and The Spectator. Coleman, so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast, finally. Great to be on, Scott. I've wanted to have you on for a while, and I've known you not only for your intellectual prowess, but also as a human, and I thought we could start there. Let, let, let's let our audience a little know a little bit more about Coleman. You are, um, I don't know if you would accept the phrase polymath, but you are quite good at, 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 at multiple things. So you're, one thing is you're a musician, right? Yeah, yep, musician. Play trombone, piano, uh, drums a little bit. Trombone is my best instrument, and... That was my initial plan for life was to be a jazz trombonist out of high school. Really? So were you in like Allstate? Like what were you like in high school? I did all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Did all the Allstate bands and I did the national bands and all of that stuff. So why do you choose yeah. Columbia University philosophy? Um, so it's a little bit of a, it's not really so long a story, but um. I guess the short version is uh, I went to Juilliard out of high school and then, uh, you know, um, let's say six months into my Juilliard education, my mother passed away and Mm. I went home to be with my family with the intention of coming back. But while I was at home sort of grieving, I, you know, discovered not really for the first time, but intensified a love of reading and philosophical thinking mm. 
that suggested to me that I should really pursue that seriously. And that was mixed with a disappointment at the feeling that I wasn't learning very much at Juilliard. There was a distance between how I felt I learned um, in a classroom where a music teacher was trying to impart knowledge that is not easily imparted in a classroom, which is to say artistic knowledge. Mm. And there's a distance between that and how I felt I had learned music up until that point, which was, you know, just through experience and solitary learning and pursuing specific mentors. And I was dissatisfied with, um, you know, with my experience there. So I figured there was also just a sense that music was very much my escape as a teenager and for it to become my, uh, my curriculum, uh, there was something upsetting about that as well. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't even I didn't know that about your mother. I'm very sorry to hear that. And I, I I'm wondering to what extent mm-hmm. you kind of associated music with your mother as well. And maybe did you lose any motivation after she passed away? No, I think it's a bit the opposite. Mm. Um, not not quite. But my mother was never the one pushing me to do music. She was actually quite unmusical. She had a mm. good sense of rhythm and could dance, especially salsa. But mm. she uh, she was nearly tone deaf. Mm. Um, so I sort of went to Juilliard despite her, not to spite her, but despite her. Sure, no, uh, she course. she wanted me. She wanted me to go to a liberal arts college. So she'd be very proud of you right now. Yeah, I think she'd mm. be very happy with my choice to go to Columbia rather than Juilliard. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, even like your childhood, um, were you very intellectual in school? Were you in gifted education, for instance? Yes, I, I was. I was. Um, yeah, I was always very good at school from yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Um, um, and by that, I mean I was good at math. Always was my strongest, um, but I was strong across the board. Music as well very, very weak in visual arts and above average, but not stellar at athletics. But you play basketball now. I do. Yeah. We're going to play basketball. We're going to, I'm going to whoop your ass someday, right? (laughs) I don't know about that, Scott. We'll (laughs) We'll see. see. We'll see. That's right. Maybe we'll, we'll, (laughs) we'll film it. We'll film that for uh, a a bonus for the psychology podcast. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate you talking so vulnerably about all this. I think it's important, you know, to kind of know a little bit more about who you are as a human. I think that, you know, you kind of came out the gate here at Quillette and even like for some people, their first image of you was testifying against Congress, not against Congress, sorry, testifying for Congress against reparations. Although it felt that way. I, I'm sure it, it did like feel that way. That probably was a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I think, you know, part of what I want to do today as well is kind of put a, a, a human face to you as well. And um, what, I, what I've gotten to know about you is uh, you're incredibly thoughtful, um, incredibly a compassionate human being who tried to understand all different sides of a story. You don't just want to be told uh, what to think. You like to, to think freely. So, yeah, I, I hope you're okay with me kind of paying more of a human face for you today. 
Oh yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So you got into college and then I feel like there was, uh, I read, I think you wrote this in one of your articles, there was kind of this turning point. You, you had thoughts about race and society and then you had a roommate, is that right, who kind of altered your thinking a little bit along these regards? Didn't you have like a transformation in some way? Yeah, like most transformations, it wasn't overnight, but um, I grew up in a very liberal left setting. I knew exactly one Republican that I can think of growing up, my fifth grade teacher. So that's the water in which I swam. My mother mm-hmm. was something close to a Marxist mm-hmm. and used to talk to me often about Marx and Gramsci and Durkheim when I was as young as five years old. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of grew up with a general, um, a liberal orientation towards race, but not at all a race, a a highly race conscious orientation. What I mean by that is if you had asked me at 13 years old, um, if I knew what white privilege was or if, if I would have thought to, you know, say a black person's opinion on this is more valid than a white person's, that would have been an alien idea to me. I came very much from a more Martin Luther King school of thinking where it was, you know, deeply opposed and aware of racism, but not at all inclined to judge people on the basis of, of their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but that changed when I was 16 or 17 this would probably be 2012, 2013, went to a conference called the People of Color Conference in in Dallas uh, as part of a small envoy from my school. And there were you know, hundreds, maybe over a thousand kids there from all across the country. And it was a conference where we learned about intersectionality and critical race theory. Um, Very hot topics a, today. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, unheard of to me and my friends at that point, our first exposure. Mm. Um, and it was markedly different than anything I had heard in my life about the subject from my family, from um, my teachers. It was importantly different, more muscular an ideology, and it was appealing to me in many ways. Uh, it said to me, you know, it took little experiences I had of alienation as a result of my being black and planted them like seeds and, and grew this entire tree of ideology about how the country wasn't built for me and all of my problems could be explained. You know, any any alienation I feel as a person can be explained by the distance between the purpose for which my country was created and my place in it as a black person, you know? So that was, I I suppose, the beginning of my social justice phase, um, you know, where I became comfortable calling people out, white people, for saying things I didn't agree with or like or felt was were, were offensive. Um, and 
So, so that was the first transformation, really. And then the, the reverse transformation was a slow awareness that many of those ideas were um, maybe based on kernels of truth, but really misguided in fundamental ways. Um, you know, meeting more people from around the country with different views and different life experiences. And reading, learning more about the world, uh, and coming around to the point of view I have now, which is, you know, much more like what I learned as a child, um, much more in the vein of Martin Luther King, um, that, you know, the, the founding ideals of this country were really premised on the individual over the group. And as the country evolved and dealt with the question of slavery and Jim Crow, that evolved into a concern for the individual regardless of their race. And um, the idea that the way to fight racism is not to throw it in reverse, but to insist that the color of a person's skin is is truly, upon reflection, an irrelevant characteristic of them. So that's been sort of the way that, um, you know, and I can give more detail about how that transition came about if you want, but that's well, something with my a summary of it. Thank you. There was something with a roommate, right? Yeah, so, yeah, my friend from Arizona who I roomed with at Juilliard freshman year, this was... You know, we were moving in together right as the Michael Brown Ferguson story. The Ferguson riots were happening, and Michael Brown had been killed. And coming from my context, it seemed obvious that that his killing was unjust, that this was an example of racism, that any ulterior that that it was a simple good versus evil story. It was about as complicated as star Wars. Um, and that was my picture of the, the national reaction to the Michael Brown story. And my roommate who, you know, was sort of had been my best friend and was continuing to become my best friend. He didn't have the same reaction. Um, the mere thought that he might have sympathy for the cop's perspective was bizarre to me. But I think the fact of our friendship allowed me to take it seriously. And we were in, I think we were in a class, a humanities class at Juilliard and we're discussing it. And because of, Discussing it with him, I realized that I should actually read the transcripts of the testimonies from Darren Wilson, the police officer, and uh, I think Dorian something, um, Michael Brown's friend, who had opposing testimonies on the issue. And so I, you know, I, I remember staying up till you know two or three a.m. reading the entirety of the testimonies coming away thinking that not only did I not know who was right, nobody opining on the issue probably knew who was right. Um, and so the confidence of people that I had 
up to that point seen as being on the right side of the issue seemed unwarranted to me. And I remember that being an important, I mean, that was an important moment for the country. It was also an important moment for me. Thank you for uh, the, uh, we, we got to hear Coleman's origin story a bit. <laughs> so thank you for talking about that. So, you know, we can dive into some of these issues. The, these issues strike such an emotional chord, one could argue rightly so. So, and you've put a lot of thought into the various different perspectives that are on the table. So I thought, you know, for each of these topics that I'm going to bring up, I thought we could explore your thoughts as well as maybe some trying to anticipate the critics' thoughts as well. I love doing that, you know. So the idea of uh, intersectionality, because you, you've written an article for Quet about your sort of nuanced views on that. Can you, uh, how, how has your thinking evolved at all in, in, on that topic? And what are your well, current, that, what is your current thinking? I wrote that article very recently, so I can't say my thinking has evolved. Um, That's okay. But basically, <laughs> it doesn't have to evolve. Yeah, um, yeah my, my argument there was intersectionality. This is born from Kimberly Crenshaw, the legal theorist, law professor at Columbia, as it happens, right? Columbia Law School. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, she came up with the idea in the late 80s. And the basic, you know, it was in in response to specific legal cases where um, neither anti-racist laws nor anti-sexist laws covered the kind of discrimination that black women in particular were alleged to be facing. So there, there are just situations where black women as a class, you know, were being plausibly discriminated against. But because you could not look at racism and sexism simultaneously, you actually couldn't find employers guilty of that kind of discrimination, right? Because they could, the employer could show that we're hiring white women, therefore we're not violating sexism, uh, and we're hiring black men, therefore we're not guilty of racism, therefore we couldn't possibly be discriminating against black women, which isn't logically true, Um or legally true. And so it was a narrow effort to come up with a intellectual framework that could deal with that question, uh, which isn't super difficult intellectually, I would argue. But um, so the basic idea was black women can face a kind of discrimination that is neither racism nor sexism, but some third thing uh, that only applies to black women considered as a specific class independent of black men or white women. Um, and since then, it's blossomed into a kind of entire thought system that encompasses uh, LGBTQ, uh, encompasses disability. Uh, class and disability. The idea that oppression is more than the sum of its parts Uh, If you're gay and black, you may experience something that neither a gay person nor a black straight person experiences, but something only gay black people experience. Mm -hmm. You, you, you suffer from an additional layer of discrimination. Um, So more than the sum of its parts is the key concept to intersectionality. Uh, My, um, my, my critique of what intersectionality has become, and I don't think Kimberly, and Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw intended for, for it to become this all-encompassing thought system. Uh, one of my critiques is just that it's an armchair philosophy. 
which is to say it's not a philosophy that you know people went out and studied um, the degree to which different people were oppressed in the world, gathered the data, and then plausibly constructed a theory to fit the world. It's just something that sounded good in in people's heads, right? It sounds good to say that black women experience an extra layer of discrimination relative to black men and are therefore worse off. They experience three kinds of discrimination where black men only experience one racism. But if you actually think about it, um, it's not obvious that black women are worse off than black men. Yes, black women are uh, far more vulnerable to rape, sexual violence, sexual assault, um, domestic violence, um, a few other issues I could I could think of. On the other hand, you know, over ninety percent of black people in prison are men. Uh, black men are more likely to be murdered, much more, more likely to commit suicide. So the point is not that one group is worse off than the other. The point is that it's actually a very difficult and interesting question. And intersectionality dismisses that question before it's even been meaningfully asked and says this group in this very simplistic mathematical way suffers three layers of oppression. This other group only suffers one. Um, And that erases most of what is actually going on in in the real world. Well, as a scientist, I'm trying to think of how one would even precisely quantify such things. And also there's kind of an assumption there about kind of a hierarchy of victimhood that we can assign quantitatively different uh, forms of oppression and suffering to different combinations of things. And that's hard to scientifically capture as well. And 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 I'm sympathetic to arguments like I understand – all else being equal, if I, uh, you know, it's better off being white. The all else being equal, I can I can understand scientifically even, like you control for other variables. But um, I'm so I really do get that. I'm sympathetic to that. I I think that it just it get, becomes really tricky once you start having like a, a hierarchy of, of victimhood that's objective. Like you're claiming objective truth about like no, if you're this combination you're definitely going to be suffer more than they are for this combination. Then if you're in this combination, then this combination, I'm, I guess I'm wondering to the extent to which comparing different people's combinations of sufferings is the best way forward for like universal peace. So like, here's, here's the thing is that there are a lot of patterns and regularities that are true about races that have exceptions. So like the idea that, you know, being a white person in America is correlated with being privileged is true. Um, the idea that everything else held equal, having white skin rather than black skin in the average situation more often than, than not with exceptions, um, is, uh, confers an advantage. Um, that could be true. Um, probably is true. Uh, the, the question is when are racial stereotypes admissible and when are they not? So, I mean, I can, I could easily grant that everything else held equal more often than, than not having white skin is an advantage. 
And I could come up with all kinds of counterexamples where having black skin is an advantage, but let's just say that there are fewer of those than there are of the rule. Those are exceptions to the rule. Um, it's still the case that you're coarse graining a country of 350 million people, all of whom have different experiences. Um, you're reducing race relations to a stereotype, um, namely that having white skin is an advantage, right? And the truth is stereotypes can be true more often than not, but that doesn't suggest that we should deal in stereotypes, right? Imagine if we're going to observe the racial patterns in uh, crime commission or uh, test scores, right? And come up with concepts that are true with plenty of its exceptions about every race, right? There's a reason why we've developed a norm against racial stereotyping. And it's not because stereotyping stereotypes are always inaccurate. It's because they always misfire in enough cases and that misfiring is can be enormously insulting to the people on the receiving end of the stereotype that we've, we've just developed this norm of not stereotyping people, treating people as individuals. You know, like to, to take an example that is like close to home, I don't know if you ever get like Clary alerts, right? I do. Yeah. Clary from, crime from Bar alerts. Barnard, right? Or Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. So like in, in the area you and I live in, we, we, we get an alert if there's a crime that happens um, by law. We have to. I think I, I think I noticed one white person in the last several months. Yeah. But, but that, that just proves the point, right? Yeah. It's like I, I went months without seeing a single white face. I've been thinking about and, that. And so, th so here's the point. The few times in my life that I've been stereotyped for being black, I can, I can understand how that stereotype may have been born of some you know, pattern recognition or maybe it was Hollywood tropes or whatever. But let's say it just is, for the sake of argument, born of like that pattern recognition. People are always seeing black faces in the Clary crime reports. It, it just so happens that the demographics of crime in this area are very racially disproportionate. That doesn't actually make it hurt less when I get stereotyped. Yeah, it doesn't, um, because there is something about what, what's so hurtful about stereotypes is like we we operate with this presumption of innocence, sort of, and you are presuming me guilty of something that turns out not to be true. And maybe six times out of 10, it would have been true or whatever. But still, that doesn't make it less hurtful. So if I put myself in the shoes of a white person who really has not seen white privilege work out in their lives, um, let's say they were passed over for a job and the boss told them, I actually, you were more qualified, but we, we have to get more diversity, right? That's a person who is not feeling white privilege. And let's say that person is the exception to the rule. Still, most people are feeling it. When they hear the term white privilege, they're going to be extremely mad. And they're right to be mad. 
because it's a stereotype. And what group around the world, what racial group has ever reacted well to being stereotyped? But if you're in what is perceived as the dominant group or the position of power, you're you're not allowed to call out instances that you perceive as as racism against you. Mm. So some people would would make that argument in the social justice movement. Have you come right. across that argument? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. What um, do you see? Do you see a problem with that argument? Yeah. Well, there's so one. There's a problem of moral logic to it. Um, if you were to ask the question, why is racism bad and come up with a philosophically rigorous answer, um, that answer has to appeal to some principle about race being an arbitrary fact about someone being not sufficient reason to treat them differently. And it's hard to not see how that doesn't, how that shouldn't also apply to the quote unquote dominant group. The second thing I, I would say is the the word group and the language of group really, it is an abstraction. Um, you know, there is no such thing as the white community or the black community. Right. All of us know. I mean, the most popular among us know, like, have like a few hundred friends, maybe. Most people have, you know, fewer friends than that. So the group is just an idea in our heads. It's not, it's not really a reality on the ground. And it's useful to think and talk in terms of groups often, but it's often not. And so when I, you know, when I call my friend who's, you know, parents committed suicide and who grew up, you know, with like meth addicts as parents, part of the quote dominant group. What, what am I actually saying there that's meaningful? In what sense is he part of the dominant group? And in what sense is Malia Obama or myself part of the oppressed class? Um, so that, that's another consideration is is just that the the concept of groups is is inappropriate and insufficient uh to the task of it's it's a it's a bad con, it's a bad constraint on the concept of racism um because groups are so diverse um right within groups there's probably more diversity than even between groups yeah yeah, yeah. and then i mean and then the final thing i would say about that is it really just is a rejection of what the civil rights movement stood for. People resist this point. Um, they quote Martin Luther King in half his moods and ignore most of the other things he said. If you look back, people who have used the con the, the term re reverse racism without the quotation marks, um, which is to say have actually worried about racism against white people, in that group is not only cranky white male conservatives or whatever the stereotype is. It's also a Philip Randolph who originated the, the March on Washington movement and forced FDR to integrate the defense industries and the military. Um, he used that phrase seriously. Um, it's, you know, Bayard Rustin, the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. It's Nelson Mandela in the, in the mid nineties, it's, um, 
many other people who's who hardly had a naive idea of what it meant to suffer racism. Uh, and so it's a, it's, I think it's unwise to throw away the principles that such people stood for because they knew that their fight against racism depended, depended upon preserving the principle that all racism is evil. All discrimination is ultimately evil because race is ultimately arbitrary. Absolutely. You know, the thing that we share in common, and I don't think about race issues to the extent that you do this, but something that we both share is this drive for having more of a transcendent, transcendent values in society, kind of values, maybe you haven't kind of phrased, you haven't phrased in this way, but this is what I see as a commonality between us. You know, I'm a humanistic psychologist. I'm really interested in how can we promote more of appreciation of kind of the uniqueness of each individual that we see regardless of maybe superficial characteristics of that individual kind of transcend, kind of have universal moral principles that apply equally to everyone, you know, in, in a society. So I, I think that we, we kind of share this, you know, human, uh, humanistic perspective on things. And it's really interesting for me and, and quite fascinating for me to watch you kind of apply a lot of this within this domain that is so important and uh, relevant to the lives of so many people, you know, within, within, the, within the race domain. But uh, you, can, you can start building up these principles and applying it to, to anything, in life, you can apply it to uh, gender discrimination in the workplace. I uh, wrote an, an article recently arguing why no one cares that there's underrepresentation of men in female-dominated fields. You know, it, it seems to be so one-sided. And then arguing, trying to make the case for why it helps society to increase representation. So I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there is this common drive for, for a very humanitarian perspective where like what will rise the tide for humanity, not just what will rise the tide for one in-group. Mm. Is that a fair yeah. thing to say? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as a matter of moral philosophy, it's very difficult to justify any point of view that does not rate individuals equally in terms of our desire to uplift them and help them flourish. Mm. I mean, ha it's impossible to, it would be impossible to write a really coherent and persuasive argument. And I, I would argue this has been true for a few hundred years now that the flourishing of some human beings is at bottom more important than others. Yeah. Period. Um, you know that's just very a very difficult intuition to to pump a very difficult proposition to defend um and we can forget that because like in the in the day to day uh you know in the the political sphere it's very easy to lose principles to lose sight of important principles mm. well i agree i agree with that um so wokeness. Let's talk about wokeness for a second now. What is wokeness? And do you have any criticisms whatsoever about sort of people who call themselves woke, the kind of their ideologies? I, you know, I don't know exactly what wokeness is, but it's, um, I guess my, at first approximation, it's, it's, uh, less a set of particular beliefs than, 
a a style of politics, like a sensibility or an instinct around um, how to view politics. It very much goes back to what I said earlier about uh, viewing politics as a simple good versus evil, as having all the complexity of a Star Wars movie. Although Star Wars can get a little bit complex because, you know, Anakin becomes Darth Vader and at the end, when he dies, you kind of feel bad for him. So like something even much more simplistic. Um, I think it's true. Sometimes politics is that simple, but the vast majority of cases it's not. And um, the woke mindset encourages you to view things through such a simple lens. There's just the right side of history and the wrong side of history. And it's as simple as shaming the bad people into agreeing with me. Um, the answer is obvious. That's a key part of wokeness. The moral answer is obvious. It doesn't require deep thought. Um, and what it requires is an active pursuit of power. The people we're talking to, the people on the other side cannot be persuaded. That's also, I think, a key feature of wokeness. And I, I, you know, one should know all of these features can be found on the political right as well. Um, so wokeness is the politically left version of that Manichaean mindset. Well, as it manifests that, that doesn't roll off the tongue as well as wokeness. Uh, we need a label for the right version of it that's not manic. You know, yeah. I I hear your your argument now. Is there? Let's let's try to be fair a second to people who say they're woke. What 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 points? Good points are they making about um you know about people who are unwoke? You know, like isn't it possible they are making some good points in the sense that like you know a, a lot of us um can be really ignorant of the suffering of those who have a different skin color from us um, or have fundamentally different experiences because of their skin color or their disadvantage in some way that we're just not privy to, so that therefore. You know, aren't there unwoke people? What does that even mean? I'm, I'm, tr I'm really trying to think. I want to think this through. And you know, is there any anything to be salvaged from this concept at all? Do you see any anything? Um, let me make a distinction here. People who are woke, like everyone else, are complex people. So, in the moments where they're being woke, as I've like defined it in the past few minutes, there is very little redeeming about that style of approaching politics. However, those same people often have important insights. Um, when they are trying to persuade uh, rather than bully, uh, they can make as important and crucial points as anyone can. And there are very, very few people who have nothing at all of value to say. Um, and so the point that there are forms of suffering that you're not likely to see if you're a white person compared to if you're a black person, 
say you're a black man living in Brooklyn at the height of stop and frisk. Let's say you're a white person who's never felt the burden of being racially profiled. You understand what the word means in the abstract, but it's never hit you. And so you assume maybe it's a bit of a nuisance, but what are these people complaining so much about? You don't understand the deep insult that it is to be, to feel presumed guilty when you know you're innocent by someone who has the backing of the state. That's a perfectly valid point. And it's a point that Agreed. the woke the woke have been much quicker to recognize than the rest of society. It's also a point that does not need to be bullied into people. Um, mm. It's a point. It's a point that, like any other, can can be made through persuasion. Um, and it's a point that is not, you know, it's it's not aided by viewing politics in terms of just good and evil, right? I mean, I think there are many points like this. So like if you were to talk to a police officer and do the rather unpopular thing nowadays of looking at things from their point of view, you might find that there are similar insights to be had. Um, I don't know what it's like to, to be in charge of keeping order, to be the type of, to be the person that all of society relegates the duty of, uh, you know, dealing with the worst people in society. There are some psychopaths out there. Mm. There are some, I mean, listen, I live, I live in New York, you know, living in New York, taking the subway every day. It does, it impresses upon one, the reality that human nature is not just a list of good qualities. There's, there are just some crazy people out there. And what the police do is they're, we just relegate the job to them of dealing with it. So we don't have to, that's not an easy job. Um, what does that do to a person? I don't know. That's an interesting conversation to be had. Um, what does it do to know that, you know, Roughly every day, a cop gets shot somewhere in the country. Uh, that certainly does something to the consciousness of other cops who know that even though that's probably rather unlikely to happen to them, it still affects you in the same way that a black man seeing a, 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 an unarmed black person get shot by the cops, mm -hmm. it can very much affect you even if you know statistically it's very unlikely to happen to you. So there are all of these kinds of insights um, that can be learned about people in a different social setting than you. And they ought to be learned through persuasion and storytelling and journalism and documentaries and conversation. But you can't get very far if you think of politics in terms of good and evil. And that is what I see wokeness as. I mean, the, the very term implies that it, it's religious in the sense that it's like, I've seen the truth. Mm -hmm. It's not all that complicated. It's all right here in this book. And all I have to do is get you to believe the truth. It has a religious quality to it. 
Yeah. That's not a helpful stance to take to politics. It assumes that you have nothing to learn yourself from the person that you're educating, right? Mm -hmm. Which, how could that be true? I don't know anyone who knows everything. Um, so I in, know people in general, who think they do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, most of the interesting things I've learned in life are things that I didn't believe prior to reading or talking to someone. Yeah. Right. That's how you expand your horizon. Thank you for 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 engaging me so um, nuanced about about woke culture. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break and talk about my new book that's coming out April 7th. It's called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization. Really excited to present this book to you all. It, it uh, represents the culmination of many, many years of hard work and, um, and uh, synthesis. What I've, been, what I've done in this book is I've taken Maslow's classic hierarchy of needs and I've revised it for the 21st century, trying to bring back humanistic psychology. I think that the field of humanistic psychology in the 50s and 60s really got a lot right about humanity and the creative possibilities of humans, as well as the humanitarian and spiritual possibilities. Really hoping this book can uh, present a vision of humanity that transcends us all and helps us connect deeper with each other, but also help us reach our greatest potential individually and collectively. So if you want to check out this book, you can actually pre-order it right now on Amazon as well as other. There's independent bookstores I think you can pre-order it from. And, and then on April 7th, starting April 7th, it should be in bookstores. A lot of people have been wondering throughout the years how they can support me and the Psychology Podcast. And here, here's the time. You know, you're always welcome to uh, contribute money to the podcast, help support it. If you're a long-time listener or even short-time listener, you want to not only support the podcast, but dive deeper into a lot of the concepts and ideas we talk about constantly on this show. Uh, this is a, a great way to do that by buying this book. So please check the book out and uh, let me know what you think. So I want to talk about a topic that, that I know something about, the science of intelligence. Mm. And gifted education, and discuss way and and discuss a real uh, debated, hotly debated, and and poorly misunderstood still from a scientific perspective in terms of the causal factors. Why African Americans, on average, are so strikingly underrepresented in gifted education programs? Mm. It is and are so overrepresented in special education programs. This is a real important topic in my field. Um, and uh, we've been uh, trying to look at it from all different kinds of perspectives. And I just wanted to get sort of your perspective on it and and link it to your uh, the term you coined, racial gapology, uh, which suggests maybe we shouldn't be so focused on these gaps. So would you mind giving me some of your thoughts on this? As all these other topics today, I'm just here to kind of sit back and listen to your perspective. I'm genuinely curious to hear some of your thoughts about this. Well, if you don't mind me turning it back to you, I'm curious, since you pay attention to this issue closely and empirically, I, I want to know what you think about the racial gap in gifted education and uh, special ed as well. So first I want to you know, acknowledge that I, I do think it's a problem. You know, this, this, this particular disparity I do see as a problem. This difference disparity is so striking 
And it is something that is such an important leverage to further education. You know, um, having gift education resources does um, give you acceleration, gives you enhancement, gives you a, a leg up in getting into good colleges. It's important. And so to have like, you know, we're talking like, overwhelming, you know, differences um, in this disparity, there's clearly a lot more that we should be doing. So the interesting question is, what in the world, what are these factors that are going on? So there's low-hanging fruit, and then there's much more complicated fruit, so to speak. Mm. The low-hanging fruit is it is true that on average, African-Americans don't get access to as good early childhood education programs. So Develop the from a developmental perspective on the development of intelligence. It is true, and is the case that there are disparities that start very young. And as Keith Stanovich has noted, the rich do get richer, the poor do get poorer. These things do accumulate. IQ is not something that just you you pop out, you know, with the, the IQ kind of branded on your forehead, and that it doesn't change throughout your entire life. Like there is a from a within person perspective, IQ can be developed. So I think there's low-hanging fruit in terms of giving everyone access to the same quality, early childhood education, healthcare. There are there are certainly economic and environmental disparities that play some role in this. But I think people have a, a prior that um, kind of need to be working with a different prior here. So it is true that if you just look at the average uh, differences in IQ, between African-Americans and Caucasians on average, it still is sizable. And if you look at the tails of the distribution, you could, om- you, you could expect there to be a huge disparity at, in gifted education based on IQ differences alone, and even if you don't look at any other factors. So I think that is true to a certain degree. Um, and that's, um, but then that that moves the buck, and you have to explain. Well, what is the difference? Uh, what is explaining the IQ um, disparity? And that is a very interesting, important question. But I think that's what needs explaining. I think that's what we really need to zoom in on, as opposed to um, the prior of well, there's a disparity in gifted talent education. It's because of racism. So. The, so you're saying we need to focus sense? on which part of it? What are the, the what are the causes of mm-hmm. such a disparity in IQ? Yeah. So the the factors that um, we use to ex- accept people into gifted programs, mm-hmm. it is a fact that African Americans on average don't do as well in those metrics. So mm-hmm. they're not getting into the programs. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that racism is 100% the explanation of the disparity. The prior is really understanding, well, what are all the development? Of, I, I mentioned some low-hanging fruit, you know, that the early child access to early childhood education um, does affect development of intelligence. You're thinking of, like, like pre-K, you. right? Yeah. Pre-K. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I agree. And I think, you know, I, I don't pay super close attention, but we seem to be learning more and more about the ill effects of air pollution, even at low levels, mm-hmm. and environmental... Um, environmental factors on cognitive development and virtually any way you slice this the typical the, you know the median black kid is getting a different dose of environmental particulates in the air and a, a worse dose than the median white kid. And by the way, lead in particular, that's one example. Lead is lead, shown yeah. to Alan Kaufman has shown that to have a pretty sizable effect. I mean, it doesn't explain yeah. all of it obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I think people vastly underrate the effect of rising blood lead levels on mm-hmm. 
the crime wave in the 70s, 80s, and on the crime decline in the 90s. There's a great book called uh, Lucifer Curves by the economist Rick Nevin that was really persuasive on that point. Um, but you know, w- once one has dealt with all of those things, uh, I think realistically the disparities are going to persist. Um, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't deal with those things. I mean, the, the way I, I, I want to approach this is by de-emphasizing the racial disparity and okay. emphasizing the moral impre- the moral imperative of making um, of enhancing cognitive development for the people at the bottom of society. Right. You mean so like if we were to just focus on quote unquote white people and divide them by ancestry so that we're talking about white Americans of Irish descent versus versus Polish descent versus Italian descent versus Norwegian descent. We would no doubt find disparities in high school graduation rates, SAT scores, uh, college admissions rates, GPAs. Um, you know, all the research I've seen, whether it's income, uh, wealth. You know, incarceration rates from a hundred years ago, back when they used to develop, you know, gather such fine-grained data, showed often massive disparities, including in IQ. Uh, you know, we could make much of those, but it's not clear that we would be doing a good thing, right? Mm. Why not just, you know, you know, if universal pre-K is a good idea, for example, why not just do it? And, you know, disparity be damned. If, if it's a good idea, if it's helping the people at the bottom, mm. then we don't need to focus on the distance between them and some other arbitrarily defined group. Um, you know, g- given, you know, we're, we're slicing, in the, in the grand scheme of history, the way we're slicing up humans in America, black versus white, these categories are... I mean, they are social constructs that could be constructed differently. We could we could just compare Jamaicans to Black Americans to Nigerians, and there would be something equally valid about that. And when we do that for income, we find big disparities that nobody cares about. Um, the point is, the categories mislead us. Um, we treat them as like pre pre-philosophical givens that just like essences that exist out there in the world. And we anchor our concerns about education to those categories, you know, failing to realize how arbitrary they are and how very recently they were different. And no doubt in the future, they'll be different when we could just be focusing on those kids, whatever they look like, who are not getting adequate pre-K education um, who are exposed to, you know, negative environmental factors and just institute the policies that help them and then not focus on the gaps. That would be my, you know, Hmm. and then you don't necessarily have to deal with the very thorny questions of race and IQ and, you know, genes versus culture. Um, I mean, that seems like, that seems like a, pretty sound answer in my view but it would require 
getting rid of the obsession with racial gaps in outcome, which is too much for for many people. Too much for many people. What do you think of that? Well, I had Flynn of the Flynn Effect fame uh, on my podcast. That's great. And he is really adamant that ha- that a lot of it has to do with uh, black culture, mm. and black culture. See- so it seems like, and which is an environmental variable. Um, but I've heard you kind of talking about this in, in in other places that maybe that might play a role. Now, what I'm trying to understand is, I mean, are you being hypocritical at all yourself? Like you do talk about this topic on like every podcast I, I listen to and you are interested in the effect of maybe some race relevant uh, variables on gaps. So mm-hmm. is your ideal world a one where then you wouldn't be talking about this topic anymore? Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm a little yeah, confused. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I haven't mm-hmm. talked about that actually in a, in a pretty long while. Okay. Um, haven't wrote about it in a while either. And yeah, I do think my, my views have evolved in the sense that, um, I'm I'm happy to talk about the source of the sources of disparities in general. So like, you know, the fact that you know, basically every every survey that asks black kids, white kids, Asian kids, how many nights, how many hours per night do you study? What it finds is that black kids study fewer hours than white kids on average who who study fewer hours than Asian kids. Um which comports perfectly with my own experience having grown up in like a very diverse community observing differences in home life. Um, so that's a very strong reality. It's also something that is not likely to be changed by me talking about it. Um, podcasting, that's something. So the, the problem with culture is that it's only really changed I think by local face-to-face kind of circumstances, like if you're a church, you have a much better chance of changing, changing attitudes towards homework in your town than I do by talking about it on a podcast. I think in that sense, people tend to underrate the importance of local policies, not even policies, local voluntary network organizations and overrate the like like what the federal or state government can do to quote solve a problem. A lot of problems are actually in principle, not in principle, but in practice only solvable at the community level because they require they're the kinds of problems that can only be influenced on a face-to-face level by people who know the particular circumstances of a particular community. Um, and I think culture doesn't completely, but often falls into that category. Um, which is why when I, when I think, when I'm thinking about policy, um, I do think the focus should not be on looking at racial disparities. Um, if that makes sense. Well, I think that there's great value in looking at policies that will rise the tide for everyone. And and you said particularly those at the bottom. Yeah. And I guess um, the, the define what is the bottom? How do you define that? You know, are we talking about just SES? Are we talking about in terms, you know, what does that mean? But so I think there's great value in that. What I'm trying to logically think through here is like, well, 
what if there are certain variables that are race-specific, though, that do create certain inequalities for particular groups? You know, are you saying we should we should ignore that? So, I mean, if we're talking about if we're talking about culture, culture, yeah, uh, culture is not the same as race. It's often correlated with race. Uh, so for example, the culture, the average household culture of the typical Nigerian immigrant to America is vastly different than the average household culture of the typical black American descended from American slavery. They are of the same race, but, um, very different cultures Mm -hmm. in basically every way you could think of, including attitudes towards toward education. Well, and that's primarily, but I just want to clarify, that's primarily what I'm talking about when I talk about, like I even use phrases like black culture and people could argue, what the heck does that even mean? But um, right. I'm arguing about attitudes towards education and the kind of stigmatization that people um, within a certain culture might experience for expressing aspirations, particular mm-hmm. aspirations. I just wanted to be mm-hmm. clear what I was referring to. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That, that's what I'm zooming in on. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that need not necessarily be talked about as a racial phenomenon. Okay. Because it's not, strictly speaking, right? It's a phenomenon that is very disproportionate in that far more, you know, I've never met a single Asian American kid who got teased for being a sort of traitor to his race for... Um, liking school or for walking around with a book or for trying hard in class. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm saying it's um, very atypical. Right, because part of that culture is hard work. That's right. Whereas many black kids would get the sense or be teased for acting white if they go to a particular kind of school and if they um, try very hard in school. Right, I'm trying to. Um, I'm trying to think. What are the effects of that? Like, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, the effects of that are are um, only bad. Right. Um. So, you know, how does one? So, I mean, that that is the kind of problem, though, that I think is more liable to local intervention. You know, and it's certainly a good thing to be able to talk about it on a podcast, but um, probably what is more responsive to, you know, you know, anywhere that I'm, that I'm writing or talking, the audience is like implicitly the nation and even Mm. like parts of Europe, like the implicitly like the English speaking world. Um, that would be different if I, you know, like if I give a talk at the local charter school, Mm. I'm much more comfortable talking about that kind of thing because it actually like, it has more of a chance of landing as, as a, an important causal variable for, for positive change because of the nature of how like culture operates. Um, So when the audience is like implicitly the nation, 
it's not that I don't want to talk about those things. It's just that um, I think there's a more important message, which is that racial despair, focusing on racial disparities as if racial disparities are a proxy for human well-being mm. is a mistake, a very important intellectual error. Mm. I'd love to see you uh, ad- like develop that argument um, even further as the years go on. I'm mm-hmm. so curious to see where your career goes and it's it's been a delight for me to even to see in in the what have i known you just a year <laughs> maybe a little uh, more than that a little more than that yeah. um how your own thinking has evolved and even your thinking on reparations has uh has, has evolved and or at least you know has has, sh- has shifted and in, in in various ways and can can you kind of leave right now kind of a um a vision you have for the good society <laughs> what I mean, what is your what is your Martin Luther speech look like right now? On uh, you know, where the clutch say the Coleman Hughes speech, uh, February eighth, two thousand twenty. Where is it looking right now? <laughs> well, so we're human beings with a human nature that is part good and part bad. That's complex. Part of that complexity is an inherent urge to form tribes, to delineate my group of people separate it from yours to feel more empathy for mine, less for yours. Uh, that will never go away. Whether that is defined by race, by interests, by religion, um, by politics. Um, but that that's a instinctual and first order urge that humans have. There, humans also have the capacity to reflect on their first order urges and emotions. And, you know, rationally develop principles that make sense upon reflection, that make moral sense upon reflection. And one of those principles is the the colorblind ideal, Hmm. right? And at a first order level, everyone sees race and can't help but see it, Hmm. and it matters. But upon reflection, most people can come to realize or be made to realize or be persuaded that race actually does not matter. It really is, upon reflection, just your skin color. Um, and so my vision is for more and more people to reflect, to go past the first order urge that says, this is my group, that's yours. That first order urge that will always be there. And to reach the second order level where the idea of colorblindness as a moral principle guides our policymaking, guides how we seek to treat other people and demand to be treated ourselves, and guides our sense of how much we can expand the circle of concern and empathy as 
one human family. Well, brother, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you felt as though your views were were fairly represented and had a chance for airing because I really just wanted to kind of just sit back and kind of listen to you today. Awesome, Scott. Thank you so much. I wish you well. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.